The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. It's eight minutes past the midday mark. It is the 11th of May, 2020. We're now well and truly into lockdown, although the levels have been dropped um, we are now experiencing lockdown perhaps at its absolute worst because we are seeing the effect that it is having on small, micro and medium-sized enterprises as well as the effect it's going to have on our fiscus. Now, when the, the lockdowns were announced by our president, we were all very happy about it. We thought he's taken a very strong leadership stance in respect of the fact that he's introduced very strong measures to, to combat the spread of this virus. But then certain things started slipping in. We now have a curfew, which we never had under lockdown level five, but we do have under lockdown level four. We suddenly, at the outset of the lockdown, had a cessation on the sale of alcohol and on cigarettes, which was very strange because no other country in the world has actually banned the sale of cigarettes, etc. And the greatest concern to me, and I vocalized this during several interviews with, with television news this weekend, is the fact that not only have citizens been criminalized who are now purchasing cigarettes and alcohol via bootlegging methods, but more importantly, now when we need money for the receiver of revenue more than any time in our history to support these SMEs, to support industry, to support the unemployed, etc., we've taken away a major contributor to the fiscus. Now, we already know that it's costing 1.5 billion rand a month just in lost tax from the sale of cigarettes. But what about the retailers? What about the monies they were making from selling the cigarettes? And the same applies to alcohol. So for somebody who's a non-smoker, I've never smoked in my life, and somebody who has not had alcohol in over two years, I've now given it up, I am a staunch supporter of the sale of both cigarettes and alcohol for two major reasons. Number one, they are not banned in law. They never have been banned in law. And prohibition of alcohol was the single biggest contributor towards organized crime in the history of America. And number two, we need that money for tax purposes. My name is Chad Thomas. You listen to Confidential Brief. And I'd like to remind you that the views expressed on the show are not necessarily those of High FM. You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Talking about, uh, about crime just before we went on to break a few minutes ago, we mentioned how the cigarette industry has become a major problem in South Africa in respect of, of the ban that's taking place. So one has to take into consideration the fact that this type of crime has been around for a very long time, and it's not just related to to what we see. It's it's related to, to the whole historical aspect of organized crime. When one looks at prohibition in America, it was the single contributor to organized crime. This is a well-known documented fact. And in South Africa now, We've basically criminalized the use of cigarettes and alcohol because people have to now go out and buy it unlawfully. Our guest today, Deepak Pende, was uh, in a similar situation um, as a drug dealer, surprisingly. He had drugs seized when he was uh, busy doing um, some dodgy drug deals. And surprisingly, after getting into a tussle with the police, when he landed up in court, he found out that he wasn't in fact being charged for the drugs. They had vanished and somehow made their way back into the system. In rather, he has been charged with violence involving weapons. 
He went to prison. He met gang leaders. He became part of the underworld. He negotiated a ceasefire between two gangs that had a three-year war. And he has now written a book known as The Kings of Durban. Before we join Deepak, I just want to quote what he says here. Cold jails are a good time for regenerative souls. Deepak, welcome to the show. Hey, welcome. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Chad, and for all the guys at uh, Chaya FM. I appreciate the opportunity, man. So Deepak, a fascinating story, the Kings of Durban. When people think about gangsterism in South Africa, they think about some of our imported criminals like the Radovan Kretschers of this world. They think about the Glen Agliottis in Johannesburg. They think about the gang wars oh. down in Cape Town. But gangs and warfare that seem to have kept under the headlines for so many years was the establishment of gangs, specifically amongst the Indian community in Durban. Why do you think this hasn't been written about as much and we don't hear about it as much on a national basis? Yeah, you know, um, a nice opening question, Chad. Uh, if you think about it, um, back then the focus was more on the African underworld, you know, and what was happening in Alexandra and the political situation, whereas the uh, more white-scale underworld and the Indian underworld was actually kept very, very much under the shadows. Also because of the way these guys operated, you know, there wasn't like um, the flashy type that was on your face in the front lines all the time. You know, you had your few characters, though, but uh, mainly these guys operated uh, below the radar. They were more businessmen. They were more business-oriented, and that's the type of front they put out there. So you landed up coming from a family of 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 four. You had three siblings. You grew up in a traditional yeah. Indian home. What led you down the road into the world of gangsterism? Was it the respect these guys have, or was it just you needing that sense of belonging? Yeah, you know, um, growing up in, in the neighborhood, you know, you spend probably like 80% of your time on the streets rather than, uh, than actually in your home. So for me, the influence that was happening outside my home was the kind of uh, magnetic force that kind of drew me in, you know, the flashy cars, uh, the woman, the jewelry. That was the type of thing that was... Um, you know, it, it was something that we were attracted to. It was something that was given to us because back then there was not much opportunities like what the guys have now uh, rather than what we had then. So for me, um, yeah, I, I feel that was the thing. You know, we spent most of the time out on the streets doing what we were doing that we actually forgot about what our upbringing was about and what the our family was actually instilling in us, you know, the upbringing, our, our roots and our traditional background. But... Um, Coming back to, to, to that, you know, uh, the influence was so strong, the elements are so strong out there on the streets today that it's hard for the youth to just turn their back on it, you know, because of bullying in school and because of so much of other influences that's going around. It's hard, and peer pressure is another thing, you know, and we don't understand kids anymore. Like, the way we grew up, the, the times have changed, you know. So now, so how we attend and how we attack the youth, we have to do this on a whole different level, I feel, compared to what was happening back there. Well, Deepak, the, the book itself is fascinating because it takes us into a world that so many people are unaware of. I come from Durban. I went to Penzance Primary. I grew up in Glenwood before coming to Johannesburg wow. in the late 80s. And I must be honest, I don't know whether it was due to apartheid, but we never knew what was going on in the Indian areas. We never knew what was going on in downtown Durban after hours, etc., and the fact of gangsterism having yeah. existed in South Africa and coexisted with resistance against the apartheid movement, etc., 
almost glamorized uh-huh. what we saw happening amongst the gangs in later years because we saw a lot of gangster type figures, especially in the Cape, suddenly moving into politics, moving into, into the police, etc., and then claiming that it was their form of anti-apartheid activism to be part of these gangs because if you went up against the apartheid regime, you were going up against the police and that in turn was respected by the community. Did something similar happen in Durban? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's a good point that you brought up there because apartheid played a major role in um, the upcoming of gangs in Durban, you know, the history of it. Like what you see now is a ripple effect of what actually transformed like what is mentioned in my book. So going back there, you look at uh, apartheid being um, a force that wasn't actually imp- was actually infiltrating what was actually going on in the Indian communities because there was extortion that was gone out of hand. There was the Indian mafia there. He was pulling in his hands and he picked lots sums of money from um, business people of Durban and there was no one actually strong enough to step in there and stop this from happening. So the businessmen of Durban, you know, the Indian businessmen got together and they basically formed the Big Five, which eliminated this guy. So that's what basically transformed and was the, the, the beginning, I'll say, of the Indian underworld. We're chatting to Deepak Pende. He is the author of The Kings of Durban. When we come back off this ad break, we're going to be talking more to Deepak about how he got involved in this gang world and what it did to him, what it did to his family, and how he landed up on this journey where he ended up assisting people, helping people, and eventually settling a dispute between warring gangs that had led to the loss of lives. We'll be back straight after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Absolutely fascinating conversation we're having today with Deepak Pandey, the author of The Kings of Durban. Deepak, Tell us about your foray into the underworld. Tell us what happened and where was the turning point for you? Well, it, it, uh, it all began, you know, as a little kid growing up, as I said, in Phoenix. Um, there was a shibin that wasn't very far away from, from my home where we kind of like hanged out outside. And that was a place where all the big time OGs kind of guys kind of hanged out, you know. So for me, the influence began from there and... Um, we, 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 as I said, we were drawn, we were fascinated by these guys, you know, because of the, of the stuff they were doing. They were making major moves, they had lots of money. We wanted that. So, growing up for me, it was all around that situation. And thereafter, you know, I started doing a small job for them, like deliveries and dropouts and stuff. And then things started getting major where I started making some moves of my own and some connections of my own where I started making a lot of money. And, and that basically what caused a lot of conflict, I'll say, within, Wooden people in um, my gang or my, my 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 faction or my crew, if you want to call that, and that's been everything started to go bad for me. Now we've seen a resurgence in violence, specifically in the area where you grew up, Phoenix, and we've seen turf wars involving tow truck drivers. We've seen major arrests involving people with such um, infamous names like Teddy Mafia, etc. Um, is there a resurgence yeah. of gangsterism, or has it just come more to the fore and is more in the public eye? The- you know, um, it's always been there. You know, as as bringing it back to the to the book, you know, it started way back in the 1900s, 1920s, 1930s. Durban was known as Little Chicago because of the type of shootouts and gang wars that was actually being trans- uh, uh, transpired here compared to Al Capone there in Chicago. So. What you see now is actually, as I said, a ripple effect of what actually transformed, and it was always there, but 
what's happening now is that gangsters have changed. So uh, back then, they were more of look after the community, taking care of the people and safeguarding the community. Now it's become self-destructive. Now if you look at it, the kids are no longer protected anymore. Now they are the target market. The youth is the target market. And uh, if if you compare to what like like a lot of readers come back to me and say, "Hey, you know, when I read your book, this actually doesn't be right." You're talking about gangsters protecting the community. I mean, I haven't seen this before, but that's how it was back then. But as I said, times have evolved, and with that time evolving, you know, um, th- things actually went down to the worst. I'll say, especially like what you see now. The, it's it's life. You know, the gang wars are out there. It's it's happening. It's part of our daily life. And I, and for a long time, the Indian community has shied away from this. It's because we are so conservative. You know, that's the type of people we are. But bringing this book out in, in the limelight and and bringing it out there now, you can see people are taking an interest because. It's a part of reality, and we need to know how to deal with the situation because it's scary about what's going on. Right? I'll tell you one thing. It's extremely fascinating to hear, and it's not the first time I've heard this, where gangsters are also the protectors of their communities, where people in communities would go to gangsters to mediate problems that they may have had in their families, etc. And hearing about exactly. Durban being the Chicago of South Africa in the 1920s and 30s is something we're going to chat about a little bit later in the show. But I need to ask you this. There was always a form of honor amongst these these gangs. And whatever their moves were, etc., like you said, there seemed to be a unwritten rule that they would protect their direct community and their youth. This seems to have flown out the window with the advent of the huge drug problem that we've experienced in South Africa from the mid to late 80s right up until now, starting with mandrakes and now looking I think in Durban they call it sugars and other things. Do you think drugs and the control of turf is what has changed the way these gangs operate? Yeah, yeah, because because the drugs have evolved and changed as well. Uh, the money has become bigger, and and that when the money becomes became bigger, the greed and also you know in terms of uh, your turf now you got to protect your turf is because the competition is being stiffened right now. So that's that's what you see happening right now, and not only in Durban, but you see it throughout the country. Just recently, a l- number of gangsters, a number of underworld figures being assassinated, and a lot of gang wars being being uh, brought up is because there's been a shift now. You know, like every 10 years or 15 years, you see a shift in power. You know, in in the, within the underworld, and this is something that I picked up during my research. And um, coming back to 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 the um, the greed and the jealousy, and that is why now you see the kids have become the target market because it's more accessible to them. It's easy accessible to them. And the time I grew up, the gangsters around I grew up, they were not. A, they didn't sell drugs to us, you know. We couldn't get mandrax, so we couldn't get drugs. And coming back to mandrax academic, you know, if you look at that, nobody actually was stealing, robbing, and murdering people to buy mandrax because it was, it was a drug that was kept hushed. It was a drug that was kept very, very quiet. And it was also something that, not like what sugars is actually doing to the community, where it's actually destroying people. I mean, you see people standing on the roadside, man. It's scary. As I said, it's 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 a downward spiral for us, and 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 not just the Indian community, but the whole entire South Africa. We really need to learn and and find avenues and the knowledge that of the kings of Durban for us to deal with the situation. In all the in all the years, you know, with your first major arrest and with your your first major court case. You saw that the drugs disappeared. Mm. Do you believe that the drugs disappeared because the police gave those drugs to other rival dealers? Is there police complicity? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it happened then, it's happening now. It's, it's, uh, it's been happening for a while as well. You know, it's, um, 
It's a crooked cops, you know. Basically, a lot of cops go out there, put the uniform on this, uh, in the mornings and go out and say, you know, today I'm going out there to do an arrest. Today I'm going out there to, to protect the community and serve the uh, community of what they've sworn under. But there's a lot, also a lot of cops that go out there and are working in cahoots with drug dealers and working cahoots with uh, political people and stuff like that there. So it's all a means of getting paid, as I said. It all, it's all boiling down right now. The underworld is all around money. It's not about the ethics anymore. It's not about the honor anymore. It's just about the money now. It's all about get the money and get it as quick and as fast as you can. So that's that's basically the ethics and uh, the underlying rule, I'd say, of the underworld at this current stage. Of the year. We're talking today to reform gangster Deepak Pende, who's also the author of the book, The Kings of Durban. You can get yourself a copy of this book um, if you're lucky enough by contacting us via our Facebook page, which is Confidential Brief Radio Show. Well, obviously, you can order one, and uh, we'll be letting you know where you can purchase those books a little bit later in the show. Uh, we've now reached the halfway mark of the show. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I'm interested in hearing from Deepak about the the history of gangsterism in Durban, and especially the fact that there were these shootouts and this gang war that took place in the 1920s and 30s, which was never really reported on until the book The Kings of Durban came out. You're listening to Confidential Brief. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Thank you to all our listeners for joining us during lockdown. I'd like to apologize, as usual, for the fact that we are broadcasting remotely. Believe it or not, I'm in my lounge at home. And this is via Skype audio. My guest is sitting in Durban via Skype audio. And to our essential media services um, employees at High FM who've gone into studio to um, DJ Flo and to Tabo, thank you so much for making this possible. And to our studio engineer, Craig, who's always there on top of everything, a big shout-out to you. So, guys, uh, again, great apologies if there's any technical glitches or any sound issues. We're chatting to Deepak Pandey about his book, the Kings of Durban, and it's a fascinating story because Deepak tells us his story in respect to the fact, as an introduction, how he got involved in a world of gangsterism, the underworld, and how he got to meet high-ranking members and the older generation um, in prison, etc. But we don't know these stories. These are stories that were kept from us, and these are stories that need to be told. They need to be made into movies, etc. So I'm fascinated to hear about the origins of this Durban gangsterism and the fact that it was known as Little Chicago. Deepak, tell us more about that. Wow. Uh, well, that's basically where it all began. You know, when when Indians were uh, basically brought into to South Africa as passenger Indians, uh, not actually the laborers now, the business people, they were they were the humble Gujarati and more Muslim um, part of the Indian community. And when they actually came in, uh, they were building... Uh, Durban, the Indian sector of Durban, they build their shops at the bottom and their houses at the top and that's how they live. If you look at it, it's very similar to how India is actually, you know, designed the same type of building structure and, uh, structure. So during that time, you know, there was a feud happening in India as well where one of the, the Indian mafia guys there basically then, uh, ran away and came to, to Durban as a stowaway. And when he came in here, he saw an opportunity for rich pickings. He saw the market. He saw the business uh, opportunities. So first he went out there and he was uh, pretending to collect money for poor causes and uh, the the, um, the poor people in India. And people were coming out there and they were giving money to him because he had this humble appearance and 
This is how he basically portrayed himself. The last time went by, he started recruiting people from the old Dutch Road uh, area, and he formed himself into a small underworld uh, gang type of an operation where it no longer became collection of money for uh, the causes of Ibona. Now it became uh, extortion. And it came in, in the late 40s, in, the, in between the 20s and 30s, it was way out of control, where you had guys like uh, German West, uh, guys like Kaji, who were actually really, really enforcing the firm hand of uh, extortion. And then you had the business guys who were like, you know, what do we do? You know, you can't actually go to the cops because it's a party. There's not um, anyone really there in terms of the law to back us up. What do we do? So that was a time when these five guys were business people. Uh, and also the, the heads, like the managers and coaches of the Crimson League Football Club, that got together and said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to eliminate this guy and we're going to plan and plot this. So it took like a month or two and um, um, it all went down. You know, the hit was, was put out and they took out this guy, Kaji, and they took out his um, bodyguard who was this uh, guy called German West. And Kaji managed to survive, but he went to Johannesburg where he was actually hiding out there. And back in Durban, it's supposed to be like, you know what, job done, we can close up shop and continue as normal. But some people in that Big Five also saw an opportunity for them. And now the guys in Durban were actually paying these guys money and saying, hey, hey, we know we pay you protection, not extortion, protection. And um, with that there, these guys, the Big Five now basically took over. They had like uh, people collecting all over Durban, all over sectors, and then they took over Tagari and it became loan sharking, and then it became gambling and collecting tax from other gangsters. And slowly it transformed into a network and an organized crime unit. But what they didn't anticipate was Durban was also evolving at that time, and the taxi rates were open, the taxi cabs were open. So the government opened up um, a taxi cab stand in Gray and Victoria Street, this opposite Captain's Balcony, where the Salot brothers were from Ovalport. And now, these guys were not actually gangsters as well, but they were a tough bunch of dudes. And they were running the, the taxi operation. So everything went on between the pirate taxis and them. You know, there was a feud between, because the Salots now want to move all the pirate taxis and the pirate taxi guys hide the Crimson League. And that's when things really started getting hectic. And that's what brought on to a whole lot gang where I'll say live shootouts, drive-bys. In 1947, the first recorded drive-by was actually um, reported between the Crimson League and the old Dutch gang. And that, that's basically what set everything off from there. Absolutely fascinating. 1947, there was a drive-by in Durban, and it was as a result of a war between two gangs, and a partial cause of that was a taxi war, very similar to what we see today. But obviously in those days, something completely unheard of, and something that wouldn't have filtered through to the main news networks, because nobody would want to have frightened the white community into believing that there was a threat that existed of violence from a, a group from another from another race. So it just shows you how apartheid has kept these stories from us, yet they are so fascinating and they're so ingrained in, in our communities. Since you decided to go on this road of, of reformation and to write this book, has there been any resistance from anybody within the community or have people joined forces and been excited to see the story written? You know, uh, you know, I got goosebumps you asked me, uh, asked me that question because when I first started off, it was, um, it, nobody wanted to be involved. You know, it was all negative and, uh, I had my life threatened twice. Um, shut up, uh, 
guys had to extort, you know, all sorts of things. But I don't know, there was something in me, burning in me that says, you know, I got to go out and do this because it, it's basically a problem that nobody's attacking and there's nobody attending to the situation. So I need a voice. And the best voice to have is, is this book that I've got in my hand right now, you know, while I'm chatting to you is because all the knowledge and everything is in this, in this novel. And if, if you really sit back and think about the whole transition of, of, of these guys, uh, coming out from that time period and, and the ripple effect of what actually happened now. It's actually, as you said, it's amazing. It's astounding because you never ever think that there's very, very little when you, when you come to research in this year, the only sort of research we managed to find was in Drum Magazine and, and in Post, but the stories came from the people that were actually there. I was lucky enough to actually meet no, uh, let's go to Bana, um, who was the last surviving member of the Crimson League Big Five. And he took me around to meet a lot of other people from the Salad family and the old Dutch Rock gang. And everything basically came, came together because he was the one that came out and said to the underworld, you know what, we, we're going to tell the story. And the guys were like, no, you know, we cannot tell the story. It's a secret. It's a code of honor that we carried for, he carried for over 50 years. And he said, no, it's time that everybody knows. It's time that people know because he knew my purpose behind this was to basically educate the youth and to inform people of what transpired then and how it actually changed our lifestyle. It's part of our history. You know, as an Indian community, you ask anybody about the story, they'll tell you about it. Because it was something that people spoke about, but they only could speak about it at the kitchen table. They couldn't take it out. Into the street. People were getting murdered for, for mentioning the names. As I said, my uncle was actually um, well, uh, stabbed and, and, and murdered in 1973 because he was collecting photos and artifacts on the Salat family, which most of them I actually uh, was handed down later on. But um, it, it was a hectic time for these guys. And, yeah, the, there was a lot of people that were not with us. But after the book has been published, like three years on now, we're seeing the community that's everyone's backing us. I mean, this morning when we just did the post of this um, uh, of the interview, you know, I've got people SMSing me and WhatsApp even said, Yo, wow, and these guys are big-time OGs I'm talking about. That's still active. But they like kind of respect it just because they know if they had another uh, another opportunity, they would have definitely changed and went down another route. It's just that they were in that situation because of the environment that was around them. I guess. Yeah. We we're gonna take an ad break. When we come back, I'm going to talk about the the Durban Indian community and the Indian community at large because it's absolutely fascinating. And for those that uh, hear barking in the background and follow me on social media, well, that's none other than Sugar Ray who I think is very jealous that he's not a part of this interview and he's running around the garden like an absolute crazy thing. So if you hear barking, don't worry. It's not the police at my door. It's Sugar Ray. We'll be back straight after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. So having my dog bark in the background, having trucks driving past are some of the sacrifices, unfortunately, we have to make not having our soundproof studio um, where the guys are sitting, um, able to to ensure that we're still broadcasting out on these airways. And I hope that you guys at home are practicing the lockdown regulations, keeping safe, keeping secure. And you must also remember that we have a 24-hour hotline that runs 365 days a year, 0800-2424-36, that you can call into if you're alone. Or you can ask them to call you on a daily basis just to check up to see how you're doing. This lockup has had a strange effect on a lot of people, and a lot of people are not seeing their loved ones. And that number, 0800 36 is available to you to phone in just to hear a friendly voice on the other side. 
I'm chatting to Deepak, and uh, we're heading towards the end of the show. Deepak, um, my wife is Indian, and we recently visited the um, museum near the Gravel Racecourse that that basically documents and also has beautiful picture galleries of the Indian community that were indentured and the other Indian communities that came to South Africa as traders, etc., and how they contributed over the years. And as a white South African, married to an Indian South African for the past 20 years, it was still a surprise to me to go into that museum and to see the amount of of struggle that the Indians were involved with. Now, this radio station broadcasts from a Jewish platform, and a lot of Jews were involved in the struggle as well, which a lot of people are unaware of, just like a lot of Indians were involved in the struggle. You see at Curry Gardens all these incredible um events that took place. Would you say that the gangsters at that time were were also trying to to snub their finger perhaps at the system because of the fact that they were not allowed to get involved in certain businesses that were excluded from the Indian community and reserved exclusively for the white community and also not able to live in certain areas due to the fact that um, the, 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 the group areas act existed. True, you know, uh, it was strange enough because there was a, there was a few gangsters like in my book mentioned where they were actually living in white areas and on beaches and stuff, you know. So, uh, these guys found a way to manipulate the system. And in terms of also of business, I mean, even if you look at like football at that time, uh, it was segregated, you know, but these guys were still playing amateur football and, and there was a match, I think, back in 1964. Which was um, between Aces United and and Swallows uh, um, that actually created the platform for professional football, you know. So these guys were were, were part of um, a, a secret society that was basically, yeah, you can say they were, they were also fighting for in, in terms of their prejudice. But I'd say they they found a way and avenue to still go out and do what they needed to do. I mean, there were guys in my book that actually beat the, the law. You know, back then you had. Um, the dead panels, you know, the guys who were going for hanging at the gallows. And these guys were committing murders and, and they were actually winning cases and winning trials. So people sat back and said, hey, how, how is this possible? You've got a white jury, you've got a white judge, and here's an here's Indian guy who genuinely committed a crime. I mean, you've got like 50 witnesses there, but the guys were still walking cases because they were so, I'd say, intelligent enough to actually find ways to manipulate the system and get into uh, the party system for them to create an avenue and create a way for them and a passage for them to do what they do best, and that was illicit crime. So, Deepak, there was a book written about the Cuban influence on organized crime in America and how the Cuban influence grew after the um, liberation of, of Cuba of, by, by, by um, Fidel Castro of Baptista and how these Cubans that had been involved with um, Italian mob figures on the actual island of Cuba now had to move to Miami because they were now the focus of intense investigations by the Castro regime. And there's a lot of similarities, and a lot has been written about it. We've seen programs about it. We've seen films about it. Where's, where's the next um, natural progression in respect of this book you've written? Is there interest in respect of a television series or a movie? Yeah, you know, uh, there's actually a lot, um, thanks to the Durban Film Festival that happened uh, last year, you know, there were, there were so many guys that came out and met with us, there's so many people from all over the world actually that heard about the Kings of Durban and also were very um, intrigued by it, you know, and and when after sitting down with them, there's a huge scope in terms of uh, a movie and, and a TV series as well, 
Uh, the thing is for me, I just want to focus more on the writing side because I've got so many other stories that people are actually calling me out and want to tell their stories, you know. So for me, I just want to stick more onto the writing part and getting my stories out there and their stories out there shared with, with the rest of the world. And I'm just leaving um, the terms of the movie, the documentary film and TV series in, in the hands of a production company that we're busy chatting with. So, yeah, there's a lot coming out from Kings of Devon and definitely you're going to see us on the big screen. Well, what's what's wonderful is we're seeing things coming out. We've seen um, movies about Mayfair, Fordsburg, about the Indians up in Johannesburg. We've seen programs and and films about um, families in, although fictionalized, down in Durban that that feature on the family dynamic, what happens leading up to a wedding, and how the caste system is still influential, etc. But this is the kind of stuff that fascinates people. This is what people want to see. So I really hope that those discussions with the production company are at a progress stage because I, for one, would love to to watch something like that. And I know my listeners who tune in specifically for things like this, wanting to know more about the underworld, wanting to know more about how organized crime has has established itself in South Africa and is nothing new. It's just that we never heard about it. So oh. do you think that, they, that that we will see a film within maybe the next 24 months? Yeah, I, I, can, I can definitely put my, my, my finger on that one uh, and, and know for sure because, um, as, as you said, man, there's so much of um, the limelight, you know, it's shining right now on top of this project because if you look at the Kings of Durban, it's the entire package. It's it's the underworld. You've got the first Indian detective that's, that's in the book, you know, and how he was basically going all out to, to uh, eliminate the underworld. And then you got the reporter there, Mr. Ayi Khan, who was one of the reporters that risked his life to bring the stories to us. The little that he could report on is what we got and what we're going on at the moment, you know, in terms of research and stuff. So there's a lot of other people, a lot of other greats that's mentioned in the book as well that people will get to know and get to meet because the struggle was real, you know. But I feel, you know, Durban was, was controlled by its own people, by its own rules and its own regulations. And if you talk to certain people, they said part of Apartheid never troubled them, never bothered them. So, you know, it, it's, there's a lot actually going to come out from this book. And only when you read it, you'll actually get to see and the experiences of what people actually went through at that time period. How do our, okay, apart from the fact that we're going to be giving away a copy to a lucky listener, I know I'm going to be inundated with, with calls and messages as to how people can get their hands on a copy of the book. Where can people find the Kings of Durban? Well, everything basically is on Facebook. Uh, we've also got our webpage out there, uh, thekingsofdurban.co.za. Uh, all the information is out there, our contact details, our WhatsApp. Uh, yeah, so you basically in all platforms you can get a hold of us. And, yeah, we, we're free to chat with you guys and we're free to do uh, more talks because there's so much of other things actually being lined up, you know, from our end. So to our listeners, we've uploaded a link to the Kings of Durban's Facebook page on the Confidential Brief Radio Show Facebook page. We're also going to upload a link directly to the website, which is fascinating because there you can actually see Deepak. You can read Deepak's story. There's even a little video clip from Deepak. And this, I think, is going to be an incredible film. It's a story that needs to be told, and I'm hoping that the next conversation we have relates to when the film is going to be released, and hopefully I'll be getting an invite to the premiere. So, Deepak, thank you so much for, for, for your time today. And we really look forward to seeing this up on the big screen one of the days soon. Uh, Chad, you know, it's um, nothing but a pleasure, man. Um, I really appreciate everything and the platform you guys have uh, given the Kings of Durban. 
I just want to say thanks to all the listeners out there in GHB. Much love coming all the way out from Kings of Durban, man. One love. You great, Deepak. Thank you so much. And we're going to be keeping tabs because we want to see this. And for our listeners, visit thekingsofdurban.co.za or visit our page. You can win a copy of the book just by going onto the page. If you're the first to DM us, you will be getting a copy. And if you want to get a copy, we'll be sharing with you the way in which you can make direct contact with Deepak's publishers. Deepak, thank you so much, and I look forward to chatting to you soon. Perfect. So thanks, guys. To our listeners, thank you so much. We'll be back same time, same place next week. Stay safe during lockdown. Um, and yes, it's, it's a difficult time for us all. It's, it's a learning curve, but there's some good we can take out of this. We can learn new habits. We can spend more time with the family. I don't know whether divorce lawyers are going to be as busy as a lot of people have anticipated because people have learned to live with each other. They've learned a lot of idiosyncrasies about their partners and their friends and families that they may not have known about. But more importantly, we've learned the value of family time. We've learned the value of being able to, you know, spend more time around the table, eating together, cooking together. It was so easy to just go out to a restaurant or to order takeaways. And I think that is something that's been missing in South Africa for a long time. And that's that family unit. So let's hope that going forward, we take something away from this lockdown, that it isn't just something negative, just something bad, but something that we will remember. This is a generational shift. This is something that none of our our family members have ever lived through. And it's something that we need to take as much away from as possible. To my listeners, I thank you for tuning in. And uh, to my studio engineer, Craig Guthrie, all the way at the HiFM Studios, thank you so much for making this possible. And to our studio crew, Tabor and DJ Flo, thank you so much. I'll see you guys all next week.